Quarter to Three Games podcast for early September. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Ultima 7 Part 1. Hi there, my name is Alex Chapman, and my game of the week is not Clicker Heroes. Oh, whose game of the week would ever be that? Do you play any of those clicker games, Alex? I do recent, have done recently. Uh, it's a bit of a distraction when you're uh, deep in something serious and you want a minute to breathe and think about something else. Okay, whatever you have to tell yourself to play those is okay with me, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alex, right away, I notice you have a huge advantage over the average person on a podcast. You have an accent. That, that, I'm really jealous. I... Yeah, what, so you're obviously an Englishman, right? That is correct. I, I'm born and raised in London, but uh, I did leave there a good while ago now, actually back in 2003. But I would argue, Tom, that you're actually the one with the accent, not me. Sweet. Awesome. All right. I consider that a moral victory. I would love to think I have an accent. Uh, can I, now, this is a dumb thing, too, uh, but I can't resist because I enjoy it so much. Can you do an American accent? Is that just like a stupid thing to ask you, and would you feel self-conscious, or do you have an American accent up your sleeve? Uh, I can try. Well, as long as you didn't ask me to uh, recite the Pledge of Allegiance, then, then I'll be fine. Right. We did that before for the mic check, and you couldn't do it because you're English. That's right. Uh, how about then, let's see, what do I want you to say in American? Um, do you just have some text there at your desk that you could read? Um, how about, is there a motto of quarter to three that I could say in my... You know what? There isn't, but if you wanted to think of one impromptu, uh, you're welcome <laughs> to give it a shot. I'm on the spot now. Um, I know, right? Quarter to three, where everyone plays until the morning hours. <laughs> I know that's very bad, wasn't it? Uh, but you know what? Uh, bless your heart for trying. Uh, and that must be what we sound like when we try to do English accents. You know, <laughs> the thing is, in England, there is probably 50-plus different types of accents um, just ranging the country. I find it more diverse, maybe just to my ear, than, than the American accents. And I've lived a few places in the U.S. I don't see as much differentiation. I mean, you've got uh, accents in the West Country of England. The Birmingham accent is quite well known. And then up north, you've got uh, accents such as the Geordie accent from Newcastle. Uh, and then, obviously, you've got uh, your Scots, your Irish, and your Welsh that all have their own unique accents as well. As far as, like, square mile, like, per square mile, you guys talk way more differently amongst yourselves than, than we do. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Um, and I even, I mean, I don't have a great ear for this, but I even, once you get far enough to that sort of Midlands accent, I can't tell the difference between that and a, and a Scottish person for instance. Like, I, I will routinely think someone doing... Is Manchester the Midlands? No, Manchester's sort of uh, northern. Farther up. Anyway, as it gets closer to Scotland and it gets that different kind of English accent, I'm like, oh yeah, that's a Scottish person, <laughs> and, it, and it's not. Yeah, you, uh, don't, you don't want to accuse too many Scottish of being English and vice versa. I am actually Scottish. I mean, not, not by any... Not, not directly, but if you trace my people back long enough, a fella named, and I don't know if these are silly, but my my grandmother did one of these genealogy things way back when, and I'm convinced that a lot of these are just scams to get people to like send in money. But according to whatever she dug up, uh, my people 
came over from Scotland, a guy named, and I love this name, named Peregrine Chick, emigrated from Scotland uh, way back when. Uh, Does that mean you might be some distant relative of McMaster then? What? How would I be related to well, him? McMaster's probably a Scottish name as well, is it not? Wouldn't that be Irish? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like Mike, mm, Maybe, yeah, we could be like long-lost <laughs> brothers if you go back far enough, right? Uh, I just remember being over there and actually seeing the name Chick on a couple of gravestones and thinking that was kind of weird uh, in Scottish graveyards. So. Do you have do you have uh, your own tartan? Have you ever researched that? Yeah, you know what? I probably should look into that. Well, this, it, I don't... Doesn't everyone, like, if you go back long enough, yeah, like, I probably have my own kind of kilt pattern I could wear, don't I? Yeah, I'm not sure if every Scottish name does, but certainly many of them do. Might be worth yeah, we, having a look for. We, we might have just been country pumpkins who didn't have our own uh, pattern. I'm not sure. So, But at any rate, so you as an Englishman uh, decided for some reason to come over here, you said in 2003? Well, I, I left England in 2003, but I didn't come straight to the U.S. Um, I actually lived for three and a half years in, in France, uh, okay. in the south of France near Nice. Uh, I used to work in Monaco. Um, and then afterwards, 2006... Wait, now, were these jobs or vacations? They were jobs. I was working hard. Okay. Yeah. And uh, 2006, I moved to Toronto. I was there for six years. Uh, then I was in San Francisco for a year, or the Bay Area, just north of San Francisco. Uh, then I was in Florida for two years, and I've been in Connecticut for just over a year now. All right, well, i got to ask, what on earth do you do that you are moving around amongst so many both exotic and pedestrian locations? Well, I, I wish it sounded more interesting, but by training I am, um, I suppose, the UK equivalent of a CPA, it's an, an accountant. Oh, okay. But more specifically, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the last um, 13 years, I, I've worked in something called fund administration. So what that involves is uh, my clients uh, run money, run, uh, run funds, and we do the back office. So what's, what in, what's involved in that is predominantly um, calculating the valuation of the funds, the accounting behind the funds, um, dealing with investors, doing uh, subscriptions, redemptions, and, and processing all that good administrative stuff. So I've been I've been doing that for 13 years in for um, from Monaco right through to to where I am currently. To someone who does what you're doing, is that uh, when you were younger and going to school and whatever they call college in England, uh, were you like a math nerd, and that's how you transitioned into that? I was well. I was always very good at maths. Yeah, that was. We say maths actually, and we 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 pluralize it. Oh right, right, like plural, right. And that, I I kind of feel like that's more appropriate because there are different kinds of maths. Yeah. But um, do you say mathematic or mathematics out of interest? Mathematics, mathematics. I think mathematics. It's a word I try to avoid, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's not my strong point. Mathematics. I think we say mathematics. Yeah. So. I don't think that would ever be singular. Okay. Well, so to answer your question, absolutely, uh, math. Oh, math or oh, math was uh, was definitely my strong subject. I also wanted to do a bit of business uh, side. So the sort of two together, you get accounting and finance, and, and I suppose that was half of my degree, and then the other half was mm-hmm. statistics. So uh, I certainly appreciate your statistics on on the podcast when you're working out. Uh, sorry, out on your YouTube stream when you're working out. Uh, 
percentage probability. So it's, I'm really good with odds and stuff. Yeah. If you ever have any questions about odds or the, the likelihood of something happen, this applies to like the lottery or to weather, to gambling. <laughs> and just to briefly recap, and you'll know this, this is obvious to you. Let's say, for instance, that you play the lottery. You buy a lottery ticket. Your odds of winning that lottery, you can back me up on this, Alex, 50%, because there's one of two outcomes. You're either going to win the lottery or you're not going to win the lottery. There's a 100% chance that one of those two things are going to happen. And as you can tell me, because you know maths, 100 divided by 2 is what, Alex? It's 50. So there's a 50% chance that you'll win the lottery when you play it. Absolutely. Uh, those are... And that applies to weather. There's a 50% chance there's going to be a hurricane tomorrow in Connecticut. I just want you to know. So you should maybe stock up on batteries and water. One, one, one thing I always say about the lottery is that I think, well, at least the, the British lottery was, uh, I think the odds of winning that back in the day were, were 15 million to one. And I think the odds of you getting struck by lightning uh, twice, I think, was similar to that as well. So my my point of view was always once I've been struck by lightning twice, then I'll start paying the lottery because I think. Well, wait a minute. What if it if it's so remote that it'll happen? You think both of them will happen to you? Because I think if one of them happens to you, then the odds of you being someone to whom both of those things happen is even more remote. If you get struck twice by lightning, don't even think of the lottery. <laughs> I mean, there's no chance in hell it's ever going to happen. <laughs> uh, have you ever bought a lottery ticket? Tell me yeah, thing. I have to. I have done, but not, ah, wait a minute. Not, you not know maths. Years, you are a CPA, and you bought a lottery ticket. You of all people should know better. Probably, probably. But why? I leave it. I leave it to my uh, wife these days to days to to buy them. She buys them occasionally. Did your wife buy lottery tickets? Does the wife of a CPA <laughs> run around buying lottery tickets? My wife is a dreamer, so I think yeah, it's only fair that she gets the right to, to yeah. try and do that. To be fair, Alex, that's a that's a great way to put it. Like, whereas one person might think that if buying a lottery ticket means you're bad at math, another person could, could describe it as being a dreamer. So, very nicely put. Yeah. Now, I want to know of the places that you've been taken that you've lived because you you've named a spread of places, and I have my guesses. But what amongst those places has been your favorite to live in? Um, to live, I think we're really enjoying Connecticut right now. Um, what? Come on, you're not going to say Nice or Monaco. <laughs> Um, it's there. There's um, some challenges uh, in living in those areas. It's well. I mean, my I, I get I get on relatively well speaking French, but um, even then, you know, doing something like uh, filling out a form, my my written skills are not the best. So uh, that, that's quite challenging. But also, it's I mean, again, it's you get used to the sort of people that you grow up and around in terms of mentality. So. I would say that the people in the south of France, the mentality is quite a lot different from the people in England. Now, I live in New England these days, and I would say that that's a good synopsis. Uh, people here are quite similar in a way to, to that. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, I like Connecticut a lot. Um, it's only been just over a year, but um, we live close to, to one of the beaches in Connecticut, and it's... It's a it's a nice place to be. Uh, be out on the water whenever you want, um, quite easily. It's, uh, wait, something. wait, that's like cold water, though, right? Like, what do you do out on the water? Well, we 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 lived in San Francisco, and I think the water there is probably just as cold as where we are in Connecticut. Um, but um, we lived in Florida as well, and there the water's warm, but you've got lots of sharks. So uh, you know, you gotta 
there's there's two sides to everything. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you ever been diving? I've not been diving. I've, I've snorkeled a few times. Actually, I snorkeled in the, my favorite place where I've snorkeled. I was in the Maldives once, and that was that was fantastic. Oh well, good lord! Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was that was beautiful. There was all, the water wasn't very deep. It was uh, about uh, maybe only about thirty feet, but uh, you have uh, large stingrays just lying there at the bottom, which our guide was agitating to get them to move so we could actually see them. But uh, that was uh, that was a nice experience. I always think that that's like a dick move, like when because uh, I've done some diving before, and I always the people who want to see like the octopus moving or the stingray, like people poking at animals underwater drives me crazy. And that fellow Steve Irwin, yes. like uh, it's terrible what happened to him, but that's a part. Of, I mean, he was poking around a stingray. I mean, don't mess with those things. Just go down there; it's their house. Enjoy it. Don't like it's like going to a. You know, a, a zoo and like rapping on the glass, hoping that the animal will move or pay attention to you. Right. Uh, yeah. Even tapping on someone's aquarium just to stress out. The right, right, there. exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, don't. Yeah, that's just intrusive. <laughs> the poor guys have it bad enough in an aquarium already. Exactly. Uh, so you are there in Connecticut. You have uh, uh, kids, right? I have four daughters, yeah. What? Oh my God! When you said kids, I assumed eh, maybe a boy and a girl. Four daughters. Wow, Alex. Yeah, keeps me keeps me feeling young. That's what I tell myself anyway. <laughs> you were like terribly outnumbered then as well. I know, and, and just to round it off, we have a female dog. Just just to you know really uh, cement that that fact. Alex, wow. Uh, okay, so what's the age range on your daughters? My eldest year be 12 shortly. Uh, the middle one she'll be nine shortly, and I have uh, twins who are six. Ah, oh, that sounds awesome. Now, do they? Do four girls get along? Or I almost wonder, like, like boys probably like fight more. I don't. I don't know. I've never raised children, but yeah. uh, how do four girls get along? Most of the time, uh, it's good, but uh, certainly there's a lot more emotion than I grew up in a household where it was just me and my brother. So uh, my mother was very outnumbered in our case, but I suppose I'm getting justice now by being very outnumbered in, in the other way. <laughs> but I, I mean, you know, they get very emotional at times and uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of screaming. But thankfully, I have an office which I can lock the door occasionally if I need to get away from it. Uh, and what do uh, so I I know that you you grew up. And we're going to talk about this a little bit. Uh, playing some certain video games, yeah. and there's one in particular you want to talk about. Uh, I presume you still do play video games, right? I do. I certainly don't have a great deal of time, so I have to sort of pick my battles. And What do, what do the wife and the girls think of their, their dad slash husband playing video games? I think the, the girls are quite interested in what I do. Um, obviously, I try and keep the stuff that's inappropriate in terms of the more violent ones away from them, but um, I've played a bit of the Lego games with uh, the two older ones, and they quite mm -hmm. enjoy that. I think all four kids now are on Minecraft to creating their worlds, which uh, they, they very much enjoy. But um, my wife, yeah, she's, uh, she's not particularly thrilled if I spend a great deal of time, which is understandable. Um, but, uh, you know, I try to sneak. Well, I'm guessing she doesn't play video games, is that correct? She did uh, back in the day, um, but she has... She told me she she got very much addicted to them uh, back when she was playing. She had a, a Sega Mega Drive, I think. It's called something else in, in the U.S., was it? Um, uh, Sega Genesis. Genesis, that's the one, yeah. 
So she uh, she was uh, playing uh, Sonic the Hedgehog and then switching it off and then thinking about it too much. And for her, that was quite difficult to sort of detach herself. So she played that back in the day. And then I had a Dreamcast about 10 or so years ago. Um, and she was uh, she really enjoyed Crazy Taxi on that back in the day. But uh, again, it was hard for her to detached from it so I think uh, she's quite happy to, to steer clear of them these days based on her personality so, so it sounds like she's American correct? She's French actually Oh that's one of the things you did while you were in Nice <laughs> and uh, Monaco I'm guessing right? Is that where you met her? Actually met her, well I did meet her there but several years prior she actually lived with me in London for a few years um, I, I'm, I'm close to 40 and we've been together half our lives actually so it's been a long time and how does a guy in London meet a French meet and marry a French chick? Um, good question. It's um, you can call it an arranged marriage if you like, but it wasn't really. Um, my, my father's known her father for about thirty years. Um, they uh, they were in the similar trade, something known as the Schmatter business, which is a, a Yiddish word for sort of textile garments. So my my father actually used to sell garments to her father uh, back back in London. And uh, we went out to Nice on a family holiday when I was 19, and uh, we met her there, and we stayed in touch. And then uh, we lived, uh, we started going out back uh, at Christmas time that year, and uh, two and a half years uh, we were together, but lived in different countries. We saw each other about every six weeks. So uh, for all your podcast listeners who, who are worried about long distance relationships, you can make them work if you really want to. Uh, and your your respective dads must have been tickled about this, right? Uh, they were, yes and no. I mean, even them, even they, they have had uh, um, a few disputes over the years, but um, they they are getting on well these days. Um, right. But uh, yeah, it's certainly uh, happy. I remember actually her father coming around to my house when I was about eleven years old, and I think uh, there you go. That's the, my first time I met part of her family, and who knows what, what was to be several years after that. Now, did that cute thing happen that you would always see? And if there's like a romantic comedy about you guys' lives, there would be a scene in this romantic comedy where when you guys are like 11 years old and your father's friend comes around, you meet her and you guys are like little kids. And we, the audience, know that you guys are going to grow up and get married. But you as little kids have no idea. Did that ever happen? It did not. No, I only met her father back then. <laughs> but, uh... Okay. It wasn't until you were on vacation, 19 years old, then you guys meet. Yeah, that's right, yeah. But, um, yeah, we've been going strong for 20 years now, so uh, it's... All right, well, so I hope you don't mind. For creative purposes, when we do the romantic comedy about your life, we're going to just uh, invent that scene. We're going to just take some creative license and put that scene in there. I hope you're okay That's that. fine, but, I mean, if you're going sort of the normal Hollywood route for these rom-coms, then there has to be a part where the boy breaks up with a girl or something bad happens and then there's a sort of a re get reunited towards the end. And so you, you act two. So we didn't, unfortunately, well, I suppose fortunately for us, we, we didn't have one of those act twos, but you're going to have to write one of those in or something. Yeah, we'll come up with something. It's a formula. We're, we're good. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll take care of that. Uh, who would play your wife in a romantic comedy? I hope I'm not getting you in trouble if, if, uh, if you have to come up with this. Well, I suppose it would have to be somebody, uh, French, because um, I I'm I'm immediately like there's, uh, <laughs> Isabella Huppert, there's Audrey Tuto, Toto, Tato. I don't know how you Tautou. say that. I think it would uh, probably be her, Audrey Tato. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. 
Uh, and I can't ask you who's going to play you, so because you, you can never cast yourself when you're talking about <laughs> these things. So, Alex, just going by the accent, uh, and this is so unimaginative of me, but I'm sorry, a young Hugh Grant. I got nothing else. <laughs> That's okay. All right. Uh, so, okay, you grew up in England. You had this thing that I don't know what it is, an Amiga? Commodore Amiga. It was a lovely thing. Commodore Amiga. Okay. Now, as a guy who had something called an Apple II GS, do you know what that is? Is that as foreign to you as an Amiga is to me? We, well, we, we, I don't think we had Apples. We had BBC's uh, computers in, in, I suppose that was as close to an Apple that we had in the UK. Wait, BBC is in British Broadcasting Corporation? I'm not sure if it was actually part of the same corporation, but they were BBC Micros. I think the original Elite by Jeff Braben came out on... on ah, right. No, I have heard that term. Okay, it didn't occur to me that... Yeah, okay. Uh, now, an Amiga, we had them here, right? I just didn't happen to have one. Like, an Amiga is not distinctly British, is it? I think, yeah, the, the Commodores were quite... I'm not sure if Commodore was a, a British company. It may have been. But between them and the Atari STs, those were the sort of big competitors for, for, for that era of, um, of computers. I mean, before that, we had a Commodore 64 that was driven by a tape deck, uh, or you could type in 100 lines of code or more to get a little uh, sprite flying around the screen if you really wanted to. Um, but but the first sort of uh, gaming uh, device I had was we had... We had one of those plug-in the TV things, which had sort of ten different varieties of Pong that you could play. But, but <laughs> right. then after that, we had had an Intellivision, which um, was, I suppose, competitor with the old Atari cartridge systems and the ColecoVisions. And uh, what was interesting, my my brother, who's, who's five years older than me, he was very much into American comics. Uh, specifically, he he liked the Marvel universe. So. Uh, what always stuck in my memory is on the back of these old Marvel comics from, from the 80s, you had a game that was released, and they showed you a graphic screenshot of it on nine different consoles, so you could see how it compares on in television and, and, and the ColecoVision. I think the ColecoVision was probably the best one back then. I may be wrong, but uh, we had the Intellivision with uh, some soccer games. See, I can say soccer. I, I can I can Americanize my, my language. Um, You've been here long enough that we've uh, we've we beat that word into you. I hope exactly. Yeah. And uh, and uh, there was a there was a sound expansion uh, part of, of the console you could add on, and so we had a game called Tron based on the original film, and that was that was a great game back in the day. Did you ever did you ever have that on a cartridge system yourself? The only thing I really remember with a cartridge system was an Atari, I guess twenty six hundred, and uh, Space Invaders. And adventure. What were the other games? I mean, those were the two earliest that I remember having at home. There's one called. Do you ever uh, have a game called Burger Time? When you live this little chef. I know of Burger Time, but I don't think I did. And I'm I'm imagining the theming was kept me from being interested in it. I probably thought, why would I want a game about making a burger? But I do seem to recall there were stand-up arcade cabinets with Burger Time, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, we had. But why was that one that you played? That you oh, that was yeah, that was great. Um, you basically have got sort of four levels, um, so, so traditional uh, platform game side 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 on, but static screen, and you have to run over the parts of the burger until it all falls down to the bottom of the screen. And if you can time it right, you have to drop them on the monsters or the the pickle and the ketchup that are constantly chasing you, trying to kill you. Because if you get touched by them, then that's it; it's all over. 
But there's also a great Dungeons and Dragons game as well for, for the Intellivision, which I'm guessing was on the Atari and, and ColecoVision and all those good consoles where I think uh, it was pretty simplistic, but uh, you, you could you could shoot an arrow to, and you could hear, I think you had to collect the treasure or something from the dragon and you could hear the dragon snoring when you approached it. So that was sort of like a, a warning sign to, to be on your lookout for, for a very difficult enemy. But I don't know. And this was a, th- a themed dungeon, like a licensed Dungeons and Dragons. I think so. Yeah, yeah. That was probably one of the uh, earliest connotations of Dungeons and Dragons on a on a video game console. Now, uh, wait, did, by the way, did you ever play like tabletop Dungeons and Dragons? Was that part of? Did, do you even have that in England? Was that part of your childhood experience? I did. I think I'm not sure which edition it probably was, but I, I started playing that briefly when I was about 12 years old. That might have been the second or third edition that, that came out, but uh, I was I was GM because uh, I was sort of the one trying to organise it and get some friends to consistently come come round week after week to actually play it with me. Um, but uh, were, were you okay with being the we would call it a DM? Oh, DM sorry, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, were you okay with that, or were were you just the DM because no one else would be? Did you prefer that? Because when you're DM, you can't play really. You're not playing; you're running it for other people. I think I was the only one who had the actual rule book, so I actually uh, took the took the initiative to to act in that role. But I, I enjoyed it; it was good, and uh, I tried to make it interesting. Uh, I wasn't the most imaginative twelve year old, so I did buy end up buying a few scenarios to help me along. But it was uh, it was a uh, it was a good experience, and it sort of you know you say that, Alex, but I seriously doubt any twelve year old playing Dungeons and Dragons can be described as not imaginative. I mean, maybe not the most imaginative, but it, it, it takes an inherent imaginativeness to play something like D&D. Because uh, I was like you, too, as I was the DM, uh, and not because no one else would want to be it, but because, and this is, you know, this is sort of a conceited thing to say, but I'll say it, I always felt that nobody was as good as DMing as me. And so whenever somebody else would DM, I would think, well, I would have done that differently. Or here's how I would have run that. Or here's how I would have described that. Or here's how I would have set up that encounter. Uh, and maybe that's where, that's partly where my sort of career as a critic <laughs> started is I was too analytical about the experience when other people were DMs. Uh, and I sort of felt like, yeah, you know, I I better be the DM for uh, for these guys. I can do a better job of it. Yeah, I, I didn't. Uh, I don't think I had the luxury of someone else wanting to volunteer for that role. So uh, maybe I would have had a similar perspective if if I saw someone else doing the job. But uh, yeah, right. it was good. Though. I think uh, and then later on I moved on to some of the Warhammer series where I was very bad at, at, at painting the, the miniatures, which my uh, brother used to mock me at. Uh, because of that, my lack of skill in, in that. Well, that's that's what I want to ask you about. Because I was wondering if you would play Dungeons and Dragons with your older brother, and if those brotherly mechanics would come into play. Like if your character was always like the poor, beleaguered little brother of whoever your older brother's character was. Did you guys ever play together? Uh, generally not. No, I think the age gap was just a bit too much. He, as I said, he's almost five years, and uh, so he had his his group of friends, and I had mine, and. Never the twain should meet until until we got quite a bit older, I think. What happened to your miniatures over the years? Do you know? They're still somewhere in a box at my parents' house back, ah. in, back in London. I was It was the Warhammer 40K universe, so I, I mostly had Space Hawks 
And uh, I was very good at doing the primer, but after that it all went quickly downhill. <laughs> Wait, the primer is just where you spray like a base color on it, exactly, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. I was... oh, oh, I see. <laughs> all right, so uh, so all of the pieces are in, are in place for you to be a video gaming dork. Uh, you had this uh, Amiga thing. Now, there are three games you mentioned to me that... that that you thought were kind of formative for you early on. Before we get to the main one, uh, what were the two ancillary ones? Like there's one specifically, and it'll be at the title of this podcast that you want to talk about, but you mentioned there were two others that were kind of vying for that spot as well. What were, amongst the three games that were super formative for you at that age, what were the two that you would rank below the main one we're going to talk about? So I probably think the first one was a game called Paradroid, which was originally on the Commodore 64. And then uh, they, they had an updated version on, on the Amiga several years later with updated graphics. So did you ever did you ever have any uh, did you ever play that one yourself, Tom? Paradroid doesn't that name doesn't ring any bells. So what it was was it was a top down um, I suppose shooter in a way where you're you're on a spaceship um, and uh, sort of uh, you start. You ha- the idea of the game is to clear the spaceship of, of all the robots that have gone rogue. And uh, the robots are basically ranked from, I think, 001 to 999001 being the least powerful and, uh, and 999 being the most powerful. And mm-hmm. the way you go about clearing the level is, is not just blasting everything and destroying everything. You can actually take over... Um, of the other robots um, by by winning a little mini game first, so it's um, it's pretty cool that way that it was wasn't just uh, you know straightforward blaster where you have to destroy everything on screen. It was really uh, there's there's a bit more tactics about whether you take out the, maybe the lower powered robots or whether you actually try and take them over. And then this mini game was a was a case of I think you had. It's on a 30-second time limit. And depending on the power of your robot compared with the robot you're trying to take over, um, you had a number of nodes that you could sort of fire off in this minigame. And the idea is at the end of the 30 seconds to have uh, as many nodes captured, well, more nodes than, than the opposition. And if you manage to do that, then, then you basically take over uh, their, their shell, their robot, and then you have the weapons that that, that robot actually um, holds so so for me this was a game which was very different to ones that I played before because there was some it was I suppose a more tactical sh- shooter but also you can you can choose your floors I think um, you can go to there's different lifts which access different floors or sorry elevators uh, that that, uh, <laughs> that access different floors uh, throughout the uh, throughout the game but uh, each floor has sort of different levels of, of uh, robots on it some are more powerful so you know if you're on a if you're on a robot which is um, a lot less powerful than the one that you're looking at taking over or destroying then either taking over could be a challenge but also one hit from them could could usually be enough to destroy you where where you might need to hit them several times to be able to do the same to them so i mean that that was for me that was a um, nice game it had a sort of a very basic color palette Every level, I think, was two colors, and one of them was always white. So, uh, you know, like white and yellow, white and cyan, uh, white and uh, pink. But so, real quick, uh, the idea is 
it's basically a hacking minigame, then you're driving that robot, that robot's fighting the other robots, and if it dies, no big deal, you have to hack another one? If So if the robot um, that, the, that you're currently controlling explodes, then you get pushed back out of the host, and you get back into your 001 robot with probably very little energy left. So at this point, you either have to find a place quickly to run away and and, uh, and recharge, or you have to try and take over another robot as quickly as possible. So so you're always 001. You're not, like, leveling up or anything. It's you've always got to hop into a more powerful robot to fight the more powerful robots. Yeah, correct. But um, so, so once you're in the 001 and you take over, I don't know, a 315 or something, then you can then hop from that directly to, like, a, a 41 whatever, 418. So it's... Um, but it's only when you actually get destroyed that you go back to sort of the, the lowest power, zero, zero, 001. And the other thing that was quite neat about it was there was consoles that you could access, which had like a sort of a Wikipedia of, of, of the game back in the day, where it, where it talks about what the different numbers represent. And actually, um, I was a bit of a, a Doctor Who fan back back then, and there was one that was modelled on a Dalek, which was which was quite interesting. So you don't actually see what the robots actually look like until you access this little library and database. I mean, on screen, they all look like uh, uh, sort of round sprites with, with, with a three-digit number imprinted on them. So it wasn't until the Amiga update, I think it's called Paradroid 90, because it was released in 1990, that came out um, that actually had different uh, graphics for, for the different robots and a more interesting color palette. But uh, it, that, was, that was a very nice game back in the day, I mean. Now, would you describe this, Alex, as a, as a roguelike? Like, is the idea that you get as far as you can, and then you die, and you start over, and you get as far as you can? Yeah, it's, it's a, it was certainly permadeath, so I suppose, you know, yeah. uh, these days roguelike is thrown around to mean lots of things, but it, it did have permadeath, and uh, there wasn't, so it, the sense of progression was really um, by taking over other robots, and I think from memory, if you did take over another robot, then it wasn't just a case of um, being able to use that until someone blows you away. I think when you when you were when you were inside a host, the the energy or, or the uh, I suppose health of that robot would slowly deteriorate over time. So even if you managed to take over the most powerful robot, which is a 999 in the game, I think you could only use it for a couple of minutes before it would explode ah. anyway. So that gave you an incentive to constantly switch around, and and because the last thing you want to do is be destroyed by a high-powered robot, be left with a zero zero one, and then be destroyed quickly after in that one, and then you're gone. You have to start again. Ah, so you're constantly moving, yeah. right? Right. Now, uh, uh, were the levels procedurally generated, or was the first level? Oh, like did you learn the layout of the game as you played, or did it constantly shift? I think the levels were the same. There were actually um, four sh- four ships, so. Um, um, once you cleared out one ship, you would you would go on to the next one. So I think there was four ships in, in the whole game. Um, but um, the 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 floor plan or the, for for each level was the same uh, throughout. But uh, okay. so I suppose you advance by going to new levels. I mean, within a ship, there was probably something like twenty levels that you needed to clear out. Twenty floors, I should say, that you needed to clear out before you finished the ship and moved on to the next one. I think I only ever got to the second, maybe the third ship. Uh, oh, well, that's what I was going to ask. Is uh, did you ever like quote unquote beat this game? Did you get to the end? Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't. No, but it was it was fun. I mean, it was the game that you wanted to replay because you, you learn sort of strategies when to when to switch over to something more powerful and when to 
keep going with what you've got. The lower powered robots as well, when uh, you were inside of them, essentially you had, uh, you didn't have to, the deterioration of health wasn't as apparent as with the more high powered ones. So you could stay in them a little bit longer before you had to start worrying about looking for solutions. But it's all about choosing when, and sometimes if you need to take out the big one, it's a, you didn't have to destroy a single robot in the game. You could just switch from one to the next continuously. But in order to actually take over a robot, you have to be effectively in touching distance of them. So that does put a sort of an extra uh, difficulty level because if it's something that could one-shot you and, and you have to be next to it to try and take over it, you have to be very careful about how you approach it. All right, so here's something I want to ask you that uh, might be a tough question. I'm going to ask you this about all three of your games. Uh, is there any what, what contemporary game can you think of that most reminds you or recalls Paratroid? Is there anything like if you were to think of a contemporary game that tapped into what you liked about Paratroid? Does anything come to mind? Just trying to think. Um, I'm not sure if there's been any recent games where you you take over um, enemies and then have their powers. I mean, I suppose it'd be something along those lines. I can't think of anything. In the last few years. The only one like that, I could think there was a, a, a game, I think, by Shiny called, was it Messiah, where you were a little angel, and you would run around and possess different people. Uh, and then there was another, oh, like, Second Sight, maybe. I'm thinking, like, there's a game where you're psychic, and you have to possess guards. Uh, not quite like what Paradroid is doing, but that's this, the conceit yeah. where, here's some enemies, which which one are you going to use as your avatar or your puppet to, to go fight? Um I suppose you, you got a little bit of that in, in, in Driver San Francisco, sort of. You know, you can take over other people's cars. I like that very exact. I like that very much. That's a good call as well. So, I'm going to go. Yeah, Driver San Francisco. I like I like that pick very much. Yeah. All right. So your other second game, not your main one yet. Uh, am I correct? This is a flight simulator. That's right. It's F eighteen. Uh, interceptor and there's some um, hyphens and, and forward slashes in there somewhere as well. Um, I can tell you where they are. It's F slash A uh, dash 18. Interceptor. And is that a, yeah. a Hornet? Uh, an F-18 is a Hornet, right? I think there was an Interceptor as well, which was which was different. Uh, well, no, it would be called, yeah. like an Interceptor would be the type of, like there's a fighter, there's a, a bomber, an Interceptor. It would be the type of plane, but I believe... The designation for an F-18, like an F-14 is a Tomcat, uh, an F-16 is an Eagle. I think an F-18 is a Hornet. I could be wrong. I'm just trying to show off from my my days many years ago playing flight simulators. Uh, I could be incorrect about that, though, Alex. Well, I'll take your word for it. But so this one was called F-A-18 Interceptor. Uh, Correct. And, okay, and I can imagine the graphics must have been amazing. <laughs> It was well. I suppose for the time, it was it was revolutionary. Um, I remember that if you used to fly close to the water, it was said in the San Francisco Bay Area, which uh, you know I later later in my life ended up living there for a year. So uh, um, I don't know if that was my inspiration back in in my uh, in my subconscious somewhere, but um, it was it was certainly um, uh, you know I think it was, it was proper 3D graphics. Uh, I suppose it was simulated 3D graphics, but when you're close close to the water, you would you actually see little dots in the water, like single pixels, white pixels that sure. simulate the waves to show you that you're flying too close and you could crash. But um, one thing that I mean, this was the first flight simulator I play, played, and back then you didn't have uh, fancy 
analog flight sticks. We had uh, we had the I don't know what it was called, but it was, uh, it was like a, basically a digital stick with, with one fire button on it, which, uh, which had, uh, which you got eight directions and sort of nothing in between as a digital controller. Uh, and so piloting back then was probably a lot more difficult than it was today because, uh, you got, uh, more, um, direct movements when you're actually moving, uh, the game. But, um, one thing that particularly, um, I remember about this game was that uh, it was a game that only had about six missions actually on it so it was uh, didn't have the, the most depth in sort of things you could do there was a free flight mode as well but when you actually start with the game you're in training mode so you have access to all those six missions you can play them from day one um, and I wasn't very good at the game taking off was easy landing not so much uh, I think in in most flight simulators, landing is, is generally uh, the most difficult thing. Um, but um, so in order to actually start the campaign, take it out of training mode, back then there was no hard drives uh, to where you'd save your data. You'd actually save it on, on the floppy disk that the game came on. So there was on, on Amiga disk, on three and a half inch disks, uh, same as the PC ones, there was a, a little tab that you would flick on the corner of the disk, which would then allow you to write to the disk itself. Right, I remember those, right, yeah. So that's that's where, so you had to flick that switch until, um, um, before you could actually save the game and, and play for real. Now the moment you switched over to that mode, you no longer had access to the missions. You had to complete the training, and then you had to go through mission for mission to get onto the next one. Now this was my brother's game, and this caused a problem because we didn't know what caused the training and the missions uh, to, to no longer appear there. And uh, my brother was very angry with me because I was the one that flicked that little tab on. Uh-huh. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, back then, it's, uh, he, he was basically telling me, you're paying, you're paying me back for this game because I can't use it anymore. I can't, I can't access all the modes. I can't play for it. I can't, uh, can't play the missions anymore. So um, back when you had to choose choose that when, when you went out of the training you had to choose uh, your your commander's uh, name so i remember it was i was trying to type in i'm as my commander's name i'm not paying you back but <laughs> because there was a shortage of characters it, it said i'm not par pa because that was all we could pick <laughs> so i remember i was commander i'm not par for for throughout my uh, experience with the game but uh, I tried to make it right, so I, I, I got good at the game. I, I played it and played it and practiced it. I finally managed to land on, on uh, there was airstrips and there was also an aircraft carrier in, in San Francisco Bay, which was sometimes parked under the Bay Bridge or, or the Golden Gate Bridge, and you had to be very careful about landing it. But I, I played through it, and, and I suppose that incentive to not, not pay back my brother uh, made me uh, get good at it, and... Uh, and I managed to complete the training missions and then complete all the regular missions and, and effectively unlock it to, to its original state again. So uh, I never did end up paying him back, but uh, that, was, that, was my, that was my first flight sim. And it, it was a great game because of that. I really, really enjoyed it, and uh, it was very challenging. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've dabbled a bit in, in flight sims since then. Um, I suppose uh, you, can, you could argue maybe that space sims fall under sort of a similar banner, so, you know, recently I've, I've played a bit of... Wait, hold that thought, because I do want to hear where, where that took you, but I first want to ask you about uh, F-18 Interceptor. So, you start off in, in San Francisco for training. Are there combat missions you're doing in San Francisco? Do you remember? Yeah. Or did it take you to different places? 
it's it's all set in the Bay Area. Everything it, it doesn't leave the Bay Area, but uh, what the heck kind of combat could you do in the Bay Area? So, so the scenario is, I think it's towards the end of the Cold War. So this was towards the end of the eighties, um, and uh, the Russians had basically um, taken to the skies and, and are attacking the Bay Area. So you, okay. so you have. Uh, so are you still with me, Tom? Just. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. so the Bay Air, so um, the scenario is that um, uh, the MIGs, the MIGs are coming in and attacking, and, and there's some scramble missions. Um, and, and spoiler, the, the very last mission is there's a, there's a cruise missile heading towards uh, downtown uh, San Francisco, and you have to intercept it and destroy it before it before it has impact there. So it's it's a scenario where basically the Russians at war with the Americans and, and that's why it sort of stays in the Bay Area I think back then there wasn't enough disk space to, to create more terrain but uh, it, was a, it was a great experience well, and that's actually what an interceptor would do is it's designed to intercept things like bombers that are coming in to hit targets which is a shame because a, a, a Hornet is also like a ground strike aircraft like you should have been able to be bombing Russian installations and, and stuff. <laughs> you, you missed out on half the fun of a, of a flight simulator uh, what, what I remember from that period, Alex, there's a, uh, and it's a Sid Meier game, actually, uh, a flight simulator called uh, FNIT-19 Stealth Fighter. Uh, and I, I ask about San Francisco because one of the really cool things about Stealth Fighter, first of all, there was a whole stealth-oriented game where you would see the detection radius of various like ground-to-air installations, like, like missiles and radars and whatnot, and you'd have to skirt around them. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, you even had, like, your radar signature would vary based on what you were doing, which is how a real stealth plane would work. Uh, so there was this kind of stealth mission to get into your target and then hit your target, uh, you know, these were, were ground strikes, and then uh, get back out again. Uh, and I just was fascinated with that idea of, you know, rather than just flying in a straight line to some place, like working out your course, deciding, okay, here is a really difficult ground-to-air missile, here's one that's slightly less difficult, but maybe they're going to scramble fighters over here because here's that air base, and having to weigh different factors to decide how you're going to approach your target. And there's that sense of, like, tactical planning uh, in F-19. Uh, and furthermore, F-19... And I feel so sorry for those of you playing F-A-18 Interceptor. F-19 had this great globe-trotting sensibility to it, where you would start off in Libya, and that was relatively easy, because, you know, what does Gaddafi have as an Air Force? Not much. But then uh, you would fight, I think, like Iran and the Persian Gulf. Uh, then you were going up against the Russians over the top of Scandinavia. And finally, you were right in the thick of it in Europe. Uh, and it just had this great sense of progression through these increasingly dangerous hotspots around the world. Did it have, did it have um, an elaborate keyboard overlay that you used to put on your generic keyboard? It, that's a good question. It must have because one of the things that, that I came to flight simulators with and came away from, I was never daunted by having you know, 20 different keyboard commands. The more, the merrier for me. I loved having to learn those things. Uh, if it didn't have an overlay, I loved having to draw my own out. Uh, and to this day, I still, whether I'm playing you know, like Warhammer, for instance, I'll go through the keybind screen, and I'll make myself a little chart of like what the hotkeys are for an RTS or something. Uh, and I think that comes from playing flight simulators, 
where, you know, you'd have different keys for your flaps and your landing gear and choosing different weapons and maybe different view modes and, and radar modes and stuff. There must be, there must uh, be a template somewhere on the Internet for, for different types of keyboards where you can print them off, cut them out, and, and act as overlays for, for more modern games. Right. I prefer, though, just a legal pad. It's just as, <laughs> like I kind of like something that I can cross off things and draw a box around if I think it's more important. But, uh, yeah, so... Uh, all right, so you, you played that. Now, obviously, because it went the same with me, you progressed to other flight simulators, right? Because this was a big genre yeah. back then. Like, there were a lot of flight simulators. What other ones do you remember? It was, I think it was an F-16 Falcon, was it, that came out soon after that? Uh, yep, absolutely. That was the sort of the granddaddy, and that that went through at least Falcon 4.0. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was a big one. I remember one which was called Red Baron. Uh, sure, Sierra's the old Dynamics yeah, one. Yeah, that one I really enjoyed because the number one, uh, the plane modeling was a lot more. I, I wouldn't say realistic. I'm sure the the jet ones, but more more interesting in the sense that you, you pull up from for if you're if you're coming at too great a speed uh, downwards, you pull up. You can you can snap your aircraft in half. Uh, and right, like the wings would just pop yeah. off if you moved it too violently. Right, right. So that, yeah. I mean, that added a whole sort of another element to you know not just being able to point it and, and switch on your afterburner and, and go where you want to. That added, <laughs> added a lot more strategic planning, and also the fact that you couldn't just launch a sidewinder when you've got lock on from I don't know a mile or so away, um, and then uh, and then the job's done. I mean, here you had to really get into target range and had to take risks and. That was a great game, Red Baron. I really enjoyed that. Have you seen, by any chance, the beta for Battlefield 1? I've not. Do they have some of that in there? Not really. I mean, they have... It's it's set in World War One, so naturally they've got biplanes and stuff, but the biplanes are just jets for all intents and purposes. Uh, like, they can't... I don't think anybody these days, because of what folks expect from games... Uh, could really make a realistic World War One sim where you could snap the wings off, where it would take you, you know, ten minutes to get to two thousand feet elevation because they climb slowly, uh, yeah. where you would have as as little ammo as those things could actually carry because of the weight limits. Um, yeah. Although, actually, isn't there? Shoot, I seem to recall like within the last maybe five years, there is some World War One flight sim. Super niche, of course. It was a Rise of has Flight, maybe... was it? Is it Microsoft or the Rise of Flight? I didn't actually... Well, a Rise of Flight would have certainly modeled... Like, those flight sims would have maybe an older plane, but as far as, like, a combat flight sim... And I want to say it's called something like... Skies over Verdun or Skies over Britain or... Oh, shoot. I don't... I don't remember the name of it. But at any rate, I do think there are probably still... not Not current, but still games that would run on modern hardware that are realistic World War One flight sims, I think. I would assume. I don't know. Um, I wonder if uh, the public yeah. would, would appreciate the, the rickety model and uh, you, know, ha- you having to do a lot more. I suppose there is still a sort of a very much niche culture in video gaming where people like ultra-realistic uh, games. I mean, uh, uh, I think that that would work. I suppose that this was at a level where it wasn't as bad as something that you know, I'm sure back in the day, a lot of these these uh, aircraft would fail regularly um, for no apparent reason. I think it was, I think that ultra, level of ultra realism is probably toned down a bit. Uh, thankfully, otherwise, uh, 
people might get very frustrated by the game. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's it, there is a similar thing. Like even with with contemporary jet simulators, uh, having to learn all the avionics can be as challenging as having to deal with the the fou- the, the the limited flight model of say uh, you know an early biplane. Uh, there, you know, people who are really into flight simulators are, are willing to be quote challenged slash frustrated, but by things like that. Yeah. Uh, do you play board games by any chance? I know that you're big into them, Tom, but I have to say no. Well, as close as I get is probably something like uh, Monopoly with with the kids occasionally. Oh, good lord, uh, Alex! Never say that in front of a board gamer. <laughs> That's just yeah. I, don't. Uh, I only ask because one of the the games that I, we've played a few times recently is called Wings for the Baron, and what it is, it's set during World War One. Uh, you are not the Air Force. You're not even the military. You run one of the aeronautics companies in Germany back then. Uh, there's like Falls, Fokker, um, uh, Albatross. Uh, and what you're trying to do is design an airplane that can hold its own against the Allied airplanes. You know, it's that technological arms race that took place in the World War specifically. Uh, and you're trying to design your plane, but you're also trying to design your plane better than your competitors. So you get more government contracts. Uh, and everybody has a little grid which shows like whether or not they've researched better engines or rigid wings or different metallurgy uh, uh, or, or a specialized cockpit. Um, so you're, you're creating an airplane that will prevail against the allies as well as against your, your other competitors. And while you're doing it, the war is proceeding and you're having to deal with the fact that the German economy is starting to fall apart. Uh, and it's just a fascinating dynamic. It's so unique to the period of World War One, uh, and I just love the the ricketiness of those airplanes and how you're gradually, incrementally improving them, uh, so they fall apart and fail less and less. Uh, so, how, so, how how does the randomiz- randomization occur? Is it is it through dice rolling or, or picking up uh, cards? Okay. You draw cards, like uh, representing research and development. Uh, you draw cards, okay. and as you do research and development. And there's a cost, you know, on any given turn, you can only do so many things, whether it's build factories, uh, there's espionage where you can steal other people's technology. But one of the things you do is you draw cards, and every card has on it a type of research for an airplane, and you can use it as that to improve your airplane. Or it has some special event or ability. Like, for instance, you've uh, hired an ace. Like, an ace is preferential to your airplane, so it gives you extra prestige. Or... Uh, you know, something happens on the front and, uh, you know, somebody else's plane fails. Uh, so you have these cards that you get through research that you decide, am I going to use this to improve my plane or am I going to use on it the little special ability it gives me? Uh, and that's the randomization. Uh, you know, you're drawing until you can get the engine card to improve your plane's engine, which you need to do to give it the stronger wings, to let it reach higher altitudes. Uh, yeah, it's a really clever system. It's called Wings for the Baron. Okay. Um, I hate to say this, Alex, but if your frame of reference is Monopoly, it might not be. This might not be for you. Well, I suppose I don't know. Would you call uh, Warhammer 40k a board game? I suppose in. Well, actually, that's a fair. That's a very fair point. If you and actually, if you play video games, you could come over and join us at any point, and I, it would take me like 15 minutes to explain this game, and I'm sure you'd feel very much at home with it. So, yeah. Okay. Um, I'll have to give that one a look. I have to see if the, the children would appreciate. Uh, 
Oh, don't, oh, good lord! Yeah, don't force your daughters to play this. I can just imagine uh, being, being <laughs> World War One. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not something you want your kids to do, uh, and they would just hate it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, beyond Red Baron, were you much of a hardcore flight sim, or did it did you sort of fall away into other genres after that? I dabbled really in everything. So, you know, I was always interested in the new ones that came out. I think probably unlike you, the ones that got too obtrusive in the number of keys that I had to learn and, and the number of dials on screen that I had to look at that sort of tried my, my patience. I, uh, it wasn't that I, uh, I just, I think, uh, just didn't want to spend the time learning the systems and you can almost say that sort of feeds in some way to, to the, how I game these days in that I want, I want something which is maybe quick to learn, but maybe takes, takes a while to master. I think that sure, you, sure. Can, you can get a good dose of, of what it's like to play, but uh, you know, it takes you a long time before you, you can you know, play, put, put your face out on the internet and try and play publicly against um, 11-year-old children that consistently beat you. you know? <laughs> Although, you know, that makes me wonder if that's part of why I like, uh, like board gaming, because board gaming, you really have to sit down and learn the systems. Like, especially if you're going to be the one teaching it to people, if you want to play it well. Uh, and in a way, it's kind of like a flight simulator. You sit down with a flight simulator, you have to read through the manual. You know, you have to know what those little gauges mean and how the radar modes work and stuff. You can't just jump in, sort of learn as you're doing. Uh, you, you have to do your homework beforehand and really try to wrap your head around these different systems. And I think board games are kind of the same way. I, I wonder if board games tap into the same part of me that like serious flight simulators. What's interesting now is that, especially on the PC, everything is pretty much purchased digitally. I mean, there are still obviously uh, physical copies. I know there's a thread on, on, on your forum right now about about that, but uh, people really don't look at manuals at all. I mean, with, with some of the tutorials that are there, I mean, uh, I know you did RimWorld uh, uh, last night uh, on, on, on the YouTube uh, stream, which... Um, I, I, I had a go at it about a month ago, and that was before the tutorial was implemented. And, and I hadn't played Dwarf Fortress. I did a bit of Prison Architect, but that left me scratching my head. So now I've seen I've seen uh, Milky um, still surviving at the end of your two-hour two-hour uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, two playthrough, and, and the tutorial. I might give that another go, but that, that's something that, that interests me. That sort of thing. Well, that's another instance, too, where there's all these systems at work, and those games kind of expect you to learn by doing, uh, or maybe, best-case scenario, there's a, there's a comprehensive wiki that you can read through first. Um, but that's what I find frustrating about those games is, okay, here are all these cool systems. You know, Let me figure them out before I'm asked to manipulate them. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of these survival games these days are like, yeah, you know, just jump in there and see what you can do. Read a wiki, watch a video, and, and then uh, you know, see what happens. Yeah, there's hardcore survival games. I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if RimWorld technically is one of those. Maybe it is, but... So, I think RimWorld is, but it's way more friendly than a lot of the other ones, I believe. The, the other ones uh, scare me. I think more for, for the time sink involved, as I, as I said already. I mean, my, yeah. my time is limited. I, just to get, you know, just to plug 30 hours into something until you understand the systems is, you know, I'd rather be plug five hours into something and then have 25 hours of actually getting better at using those systems. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and especially, too, because the survival games are more than willing to just completely put you back to square one 
after you know you make some mistake farther into the game and up oh, everybody dies and that's it you're you're done start over uh you know reiterate all the stuff you did the first time to get to that point uh yeah a lot of it is like just replaying those early parts of the game yeah. um, uh so okay so uh really into F18 interceptor uh paradroid super formative but there's one game that when asked Alex Chapman if you were to come on a podcast what game would you want to talk about you picked something that has this title. So they named this game back when there were still plenty of good names available. (laughs) I don't understand why they came up with this. What is this game called, Alex Chapman? And I've never heard of this, by the way. This game is called The Fairy Tale Adventure, which was an Amiga game released in about, I think, around 87. So I was about 10 years old. And I I would say Fairy Tale Adventure, like... (sighs) That completely softens the idea of having a cool adventure. I think, <laughs> like, uh, like, like for a, a, a young boy to then, okay, you're going to go on an adventure, but then to stick fairy tale at the beginning, ugh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, not, it's a branding issue right off the right off the bat that I'm noticing. Not as cool as Dungeons and Dragons, that, that, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, exactly. When you're going up against, hey, explore a dungeon and fight a dragon. Do you want to have a fairy tale adventure? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what is this thing that I probably didn't play because the name sounded goofy? I think, to be fair, that was one of the games that may have come with the Amiga back in the day. I think that was one of the first few games that was actually released for the Amiga, that and Marble Madness, um, which was another uh, good game. But we're not talking about that one today. But the Fairytale Adventure, why it sticks with me was that it was really the first, what I would call RPG, that, that I actually played. Um, there were, I suppose, there was the first four Ultima games that were released before that, but I don't think I played Ultima 4 until it actually came out uh, on, on the maybe the Amiga a few years after this was actually released. But the Fairy Tale Adventure. So this was, by the way, this was concurrent with the Ultima games. Yeah, it came like like you could have been playing a game called Ultima instead of a game called Fairy Tale Adventure. Not on the Amiga. Uh, the, the first, ah, I but, see. Uh, um, I think yeah. So th- this was, you know, I, I did, I did a, I did had that double uh, Dungeons and Dragons game on the Intellivision back in the day, and I don't recall there being much in the way of, of RPGs on on the Commodore 64. And this was really my first, I'd say, proper RPG where you can explore, you can do quests. Um, what it was was it's a sort of top-down um, RPG where I think um, they stitched together about. Hundred and hundred thousand or so static um, uh, screenshots or, or, or uh, maybe bitmaps, and then they stitch them all together to make a, a cohesive uh, world that you can walk through. So if you actually play the game, your sprite, apart from like a walking animation, stays always in the center of the screen, and it's it's the background that, that actually moves. But so what stuck with me was that um, it was a sense of progression both in, in narrative, but also in terms of character, was really the first that I experienced in, in that way. So I suppose, I'm not sure if that, that is what the definition of, of an RPG is really, but um, certainly that, that stuck with me, and, and that got me interested in, in the genre, which um, I would say to this day is still my favorite genre, um, although um, the, the time sink involved in many of them is, is not always what I have, but uh, it was, uh, I suppose it was an action RPG. So you controlled 
um, it was it was a I suppose it was called the fairy tale adventure because it was a, a fairy tale quest in in the way that you controlled three brothers who were princes, um, and uh, you had to uh, recover the talisman which was stolen by an evil necromancer, and uh, throughout that process you would uh, you would explore these worlds. You would be given directions to head there was different terrains you'd start maybe in the forest and there was a mountainous mountainous region there was a region where you had to traverse water and um, throughout the game you could uh, actually pick up different weapons um, so you had um, uh, you had a bow you had a few me- melee weapons or do you say melee 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 I was going to say melee, but that, that might not be right. Uh, uh, and uh, then you had a, a few, uh, you had a crossbow, and, and you had a, a magic wand which shot off fireballs or something. Um, now, real quick, let me ask. So, you say you play three brothers. Is it a party-based thing, or are you alternating between three characters? So, what happens is, um, so the, the three brothers each have one. I think there's four different attributes. One is bravery. Uh, one is luck. One is um, something like gentleness. Something along those lines, kindness. I Gentleness, kindness, well, kindness, kindness. Yeah. wow. Okay. So um, one brother ha- is is um, has the highest bravery stat. One has the highest luck stat. One has the highest kindness stat. Now you don't control. Um, you only control one at a time. So what happens is when the eldest brother dies, who's got the highest bravery score, then you automatically take over where you left off with the, the second brother, who has the highest luck stat, and then when that brother dies then you automatically take take over with the youngest brother who has the highest kindness stat and then when the third brother dies that's sort of game over um, oh wow but, uh, so they weren't like scripted to die at certain points that was just part of as you're playing it's like losing a life in a game yeah exactly uh, but what was okay. interesting is that they had different attributes so um, I think bravery um, dictated the character's health and, and luck was um whether they can be brought back from death if they are killed during a quest. Um, and then kindness, I think, um, it helped you um, with certain quests during, uh, during the, uh, the game. I think there was, there, was a, there was a couple of animals that you could ride on the back of that actually helped you in the quest. One was a, was a, a giant sea turtle, and the other one was some sort of uh, phoenix uh, bird that you could, you could get on top of. And, and it's a way of traversing the map a, a lot, lot quicker to, to get where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you actually needed to, to have access to them to actually get to, to where you need to go to as well. Well, that's one thing that, that I thought of when you talked about all the screens stitched together and scrolling. Uh, it's obviously got to create something that I think we lose in a lot of RPGs today with fast travel, a sense of geography. Right, yeah. like, okay, for me to get over there, I've got to walk past these mountains, and there's going to be this ocean in the way, yeah. and, uh, and and it must have been really cool how that could be subverted or circumvented, like once you got a phoenix or a sea turtle, absolutely, uh, how a mount would affect. And when your quest is somewhere to the east, you have to find a, an elderly beggar or something like that, and, and then you're on your own after that. It's uh, yeah, being aware of the map and the terrain is, is, is crucial. And you had, I suppose, you had yeah. a bit of that in Ultima Four back in the day, which is probably the next sort of uh, large role-playing game that I played afterwards. But, um, yeah, I agree, fast travel, um, I know you can turn it off or, or just not use it in many of the, of the more recent games. But You say that, but I don't think you can. I mean, I don't think it's that simple. I think a lot of recent games are designed around fast travel. Like, I think the game design uh, specifically would make it 
more of a pain in the ass to not use fast travel. Like it, yeah. No, don't get me started on fast <laughs> travel, Alex. <laughs> uh, so uh, tell me a bit more about the character progression and the narrative progression. You said those were two things you like. The character progression, I, I, I presume, meaning someone dies, you get a new person. Um, more sort of the ability to upgrade stats. I think your stats um, based on the items you collected and, and your progress through the game, they, they gradually increased. So, again, that was the first time that, that you know, I saw you actually see your sort of character developing as you progress more in the game. Uh, for me, that was the, the first time. So, um, yeah, that, that was quite unique. And, you know, when, when you're 9, 10 years old, it, you get filled with a sense of awe through things that, that, that you haven't seen before. Uh, and, you know, back then, uh, um, you know, all these things were, were new, not just to me, but, you know, I think to, to the general world in terms of video games and the progress that they were making so quickly. Um, and I, I'll come back to that as a question that I would actually like to ask you a little bit about in a minute. But uh, in terms of character progression, uh, narrative progression, I mean, you have one underlying quest, but within that there's various sort of sub-quests you can do. Uh, you can, there's a quest to marry a princess. Um, I think there's a quest to, to, to help uh, restate someone who's lost, um, lost their title, something along those lines. Um, now, it's... So there's in-game there's in-game romance in fairy tale adventure. Yeah, what well, I'm not sure how it works though um, from from memory that if one of the brothers is the one that actually goes through with marrying or, or, or promising himself to to the princess, and then you take over another brother by the end of it. I'm not sure what quite happens in, in that instance, but uh, hopefully it was settled amicably amongst the family. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it could be a Hamlet situation. <laughs> The brother steps in. Uh, do you remember uh, what happened at the end? Is this a game that you saw through to completion? Did you ever uh, get the was it, was it like a necromancer? Yeah, we we, we oh, yeah. So, so so this is one of the ones I played quite a lot with my brother. But uh, actually, I spoke with him about it uh, earlier today. I told him I was going to be on the podcast, and he said, and he recalls it better than I do. He said we got stuck uh, at the point where we were trying to find a beggar in the woods. Which, uh, which uh, I'm not sure how far down the progression was, but we certainly put in the hours to get that far. Um, I don't know if it got that further, but uh, I have had a sneaky look at. Um, there is a three-hour YouTube from start to finish of the game, so I did have a look at that the other day out of curiosity to see how the game actually ended. Uh, but I did it. Let me ask you: when you're when you're watching that, did it like you obviously had a, an image in your head of what it was like? How did that? Uh, connect or, or disconnect with what you saw in the YouTube video? What was it like seeing it in the video? Um, it was, I mean, you know, the nostalgia element, you know, overtakes the the, the poor graphics, which you now look at compared, uh, compared with what's certainly available, you know, even 10 years ago. Uh, but what what really I remembered was that it had this, this theme tune that, that I st- it was stuck in my head. I can still, before I heard it, I still could remember it in, in the back of my memory. And then when it started coming through, through the playthrough again, I mean that that really that was that was a big trigger for me of sort of like remembering more about the game. The the um, the, the Amiga, I think it was maybe an eight bit console, but it had um, an eight bit computer. It had a it had the ability to to create some nice little chip chip tune type tracks and and. The one there, it's yeah, it was certainly one that was uh, an earworm that, that that would stick in your ear. So I remember back in the day when I, when I was a kid, I was humming that tune uh, 
you know, around the house for, for several weeks. So hearing that again was, was certainly intriguing and, and a nice thing. And I, now, I want to know what it was like playing it with your brother. Was it like one of you, was he as the older brother always controlling it and you were looking over his shoulder and recommending things? Did you guys take turns? How did you and your brother turn Fairy Tale Adventure into a multiplayer game? I think it was, it was a bit like a, a, a Tom Chick McMaster type relationship where I was the one with the controller and my brother being the McMaster and maybe my brother was the Tom Chick giving, giving me direction and, and telling me <laughs> where to go and what to do. So you were kind of the chauffeur in a way. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I managed, I managed uh, to solve some, some quests or, or figure out what was to, to be done next. And it was good. I mean, there was an underground cave system. There were some buildings you could go into, which sort of switched away from the main mats. And then the music would change when there was when there was enemies on the screen, and it, it was it was just um, a unique experience for me back then. I really enjoyed it, and it was something something that stuck with me even today. As I said, the fact that I can still almost hum the theme tune, I, w- I won't do it for you now. But uh, uh. <laughs> don't don't think I wasn't considering asking. <laughs> uh, so you say you you. Uh, you talked to your brother about it. You weren't sure if you beat it, and your brother said that you guys got stuck looking for this guy in the woods. Yeah. Uh, and is is that how it turned out? Is that you guys never made it past that point? Yeah, I think that must have been it. Then um, uh, my brother obviously remembers it better. He, he he was probably about fifteen at the time. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, uh, that that was for me. It was just really, you know, that was my RPG kick, and that's what sort of led me on to to the Ultimas and the Bard's Tales and some of the, the, the gold box Dungeons and Dragons games back out back in the day. And uh, I really, really enjoyed, enjoyed that genre and still do today when I, when I have time to, to, to delve into one of them. Do you run into many people? Because I've never heard of this. Do you run into many people who know what fairy tale adventure is? I would imagine... I guess you probably don't run around talking about it. But it <laughs> well, it originally came out on the Amiga, and if, Amiga, if the Amiga wasn't a, a large console in, in the US, then I doubt that many Americans know it, but maybe uh, uh, if, if, if the, the Brits and the Europeans amongst the listeners would be willing to, to comment on, on the podcast link, it uh, would be interesting to, to hear what their thoughts and whether they've heard of it before or not. And do you know offhand who made it and what became of them? Um, I think it was, well, I, I, I'm just, I know because I'm looking at uh, uh, something about it on the internet right now, but it was a, it's a gentleman called David Joyner and, and a company called Micro Illusions. Uh, I think they did make a sequel to it, but I really don't know what happened too much to, to him or, or to that particular company because it's not a name that sticks in my recent memory of, of, of something uh, does David? Have you heard of David Joyner at all? I'm afraid, yeah, that name doesn't ring any bells for me either. Uh, I, I'm sorry to say this, but I, th- I think a lot of people who were making games back then just uh, like, like it's not like, for instance, movie directors where they tend to, I guess, stick with it and just keep working. I think a lot of people who made games back then just kind of fell out of the industry for various reasons. Money was probably um, the like biggest you, one. <laughs> well, exactly right, career-wise. But you would think someone like who made a seminal, important early RPG should have kept working in the industry and sort of refining this idea and shepherding it forward as, as game design advanced. But, mm. uh, yeah, it's a shame. So, David Joyner, wherever you are, uh, we hope you made more games uh, after this. Absolutely. Uh, so the character progression you want to say, so the, the I presume it was the typical 
uh, experience point dump, like you get experience points and then you level up, or was it something different? Do you recall? Um, I think it was. Yeah, I'm not not 100 percent sure, so uh, I may be wrong, but I think it was more based on the items you collect would would increase stats over time and. That would make the game easier. I'm not sure if there was an actual leveling process. There certainly wasn't a mechanism where you would choose what stat to level. Um, so I think it was more based on equipment as opposed to uh, the character itself. But again, for, for for me, that was that was something unique and I hadn't seen before. I mean, as I said, that that wow factor was uh, again it was just, you know it's very hard to get that. With modern gaming, and that's uh, if, if I can turn that question around to you. I mean, do you is there is there something that you see now in, in modern game, or even in the last five years, that you still makes you say, "Wow, you know, I haven't seen that before." Or, wow, this does something different. Because I, I must admit, it's it's been a while since I felt that way. Right? No, I I definitely do feel that way, and not necessarily because something is done completely unprecedented. Like I, I feel like. It's almost like there's this this idea in literature that there are only what is it seven yeah. stories, uh, and that everything is an iteration on that, and that you know we're not going to discover any more stories because that's the extent of human experience, uh, and that's a little it's a little bit of a flip way to regard all narratives, but there's kind of some truth to it, uh, and I feel like I like video games in a way are like that. Um, and every now and then we'll stumble across like a new genre, like uh, the, like the rock band games, for instance. Yeah. Um, that came and went, but that was something completely new, uh, and that that was amazing. But I don't feel like like games still completely blow me away, even if they are just like really well done. Um, so here's one: um, the gameplay in this isn't even really special. There there was a, a little tiny indie game called Quadrilateral Cowboy that came out, which is just, presumably look at it, it's a little hacking puzzle game. Um, But the developer, the guy who makes that game, just has this absolutely inexplicable charm to the stuff that he does. And the characters he made in this game, and it wasn't even really a game, like it didn't have dialogue per se, and it didn't have great fancy artwork, and it certainly didn't have the realistic expressionism that you yeah. get in, like, Grand Theft Auto with the great voice acting and the script writing and the animation. Um, but where it went and what it did with these characters and how it unfolded them, like, Quadrilateral Cowboy impressed me in the same way that a guy my age could have be impressed, in the same way that Fairy Tale Adventure impressed you, I think, back in the day. So, yes, I do still get that, and I think it's part of why I make a living in as much as it's a living. I mean, I'm not prospering with this, but it's part of why I'm happy to make a quote-unquote yeah. career out of trying to discover and write about these new games because I do find stuff like Quadrilateral Cowboy. That's great. Um, I would say that uh, I, so, I actually played mm-hmm. 30 Flights of Loving, which uh, I think was the same uh, developer. It, it's it's kind of, I would think, that it, uh, almost like a prologue to Quadrilateral Cowboy. Yeah, 30 Flights of Loving is kind of like this test balloon he floated and then years later fleshed it out into quadrilateral cowboy yeah did that do because that's weird i can see people playing 30 flights of loving and thinking what <laughs> but did that did that do anything for you i liked it because it was weird and i liked yeah. it i must admit because of my limited time i actually looked there's a website which can sort your steam library by hours it takes to complete so i was you know, I was looking at some of the ones that were sort of sub. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Wait a minute. So it looks at like the like the average time that it takes someone to beat a yeah. game, and it ranks. 
Oh, that's hilarious. What's that called, by the way? Do you uh, know? I have to find it for you, and, and I'll, uh, I'll send it on to you. And I, and I, yeah, I would love to. I would love to. So, to be able to so for me, that. you know, with with my limited time, I, I look for things that are sort of sub five hours, and and that was one of them. I think that came up as an average completion time of something like seventy eight minutes or something. So uh, I played it through, and, and it was good. It was it was weird, but it it was good. I mean, I was like thinking at one point, is this the actual game? And then I just went along with it, but. Uh, um, it, it was a nice, nice experience, quick experience. And, and to be fair, though, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone will love Quadrilateral Cowboy. Like people will be affected in different ways by different games. Uh, but yes, I do still have that that sense of discovery, and and I would characterize it almost as awe. You know, how does a guy take a game in which you're just basically learning how to do little hacking tricks with the command line interface, uh, and and give it such personality? And a lot of it, by the way, has to do with how it ends, with um, because I think that's something, by the way, if I were to ever make a game, and I don't really plan on it, but I think one of the things a game designer, a game developer needs to do is how is his game going to end? You know, what is the final impression he's going to leave the player with? Uh, and a lot of games whiff on this. They're just like, eh, I'm going to be a tactical RPG, or eh, I'm going to be a shooter. Uh you know, what do you want your player at that final moment when he puts the game down and realizes he's either beaten it or, or gotten to the conclusion of the narrative? How do you want that person to feel? And I feel like Brendan Chung with Quadrilateral Cowboy, it just meant so much to me where he wanted that game to bring me. Uh, so I, I I just wish more developers thought that way. Like, yeah. Because a lot of times, too, you know, some games you get to the end and there's a boss battle and you're like, oh, holy crap, I never want to have to do that again. I finally beat this stupid game. And there's almost this antagonistic relationship you have to it. Like, oh, I hate this boss yeah. battle. i got to beat it. Finally, I beat it. You're a jerk. I'm done with you. And you, like, flip at the bird and you're, you're, you beat it. You're done. It's this antagonistic, I defeated you feeling. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's some merit to that sometimes if you want, like, a power fantasy. But I think games can do so much more. Uh, and so I do come away with that sense of yeah. awe when a game leaves me with a, a unique feeling or, uh, yeah. Uh, so what has, are, are you basically saying that you don't feel that way anymore or there are rare games that still bring that to you? Like, do you feel that that's something you can't get from video games anymore? I, 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 no, I don't think to the same extent. Certainly. I mean, obviously, when, when you're younger, there's, you know, just through ignorance, there's a lot you haven't experienced. And that's why you know, yeah, things yeah. are new. But there's this I would say there's quite a there's some games that I've really, really enjoyed that, you know, ones that I still think about when I'm not playing them. Like, when am I going to next have a chance to, to you know, to, to play a bit more? I think two recent ones probably was, was Offworld Trading Company. And maybe that's because of the, the mm. accountant in me that, that appreciated the you know, things <laughs> But uh, I, I didn't play. I know that was based on another game, which I, which I didn't play back in the day. So you know that was my first experience of of that sort of game. But that that was enjoyable, and actually um, one of the few games that I actually played on online in the last few years. I've played with a couple of, of forum members actually, which which was very enjoyable. So that was really good. And the other one that I really enjoyed, I think, was was Dark Souls, the, the Dark Souls um, trilogy sure. and, and Demon Souls, and and just the the sense of progression and, and the difficulty and I mean I must admit I was a bit of a of a wimp I'm not a hardcore player I would I would use summons for bosses I would sometimes uh, 
look at playthroughs and try and repeat them myself. But, you know, even if you do do that, it still takes quite a level of skill. It's not just, you know, hammering the button and, and, and hoping that's going to get you through. So I, so I enjoyed that sort of like a, you know, back to the old, old games, which were very punishing, you know, the games you know, for, of the Amiga and, and Commodore 64 generations that were, were a lot more punishing. So I really enjoyed that. So I would say that, you know, that series and, and Off-World Trading Company too that I've specifically enjoyed. I've really wanted to get into games like uh, Witcher 3, which is highly lauded. Uh, I just haven't had the motivation to, to get rolling on that yet, but someday. Well, and you're right. Like that's a that's a time sink. Like for the same reason that I've never sat down to finally watch The Wire because that's what like 60 hours of TV, and I know I'd enjoy it. That's just kind of daunting to look at that, and especially like in your situation where you've got limited time. The Witcher, it's like you know, it's 50 hours. Yeah. Uh, you're sitting down, and, and like you said before, you know, would you rather play something that you could master and enjoy in five hours, or do you want something that takes 50 hours? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Dark Souls 2, by the way, talking about an adversarial game experience, like that is a very adversarial game in that it will do terrible things to you, but one thing that adversarial game experiences do is they create far more gratifying a sense of triumph when, when you get past it. Absolutely. Uh, in Dark Souls, for all of its, I feel, violations of the conventional wisdom of contemporary game design, uh, it definitely captures things that a lot of games don't do. Yeah. So, uh, Offworld Trading Company. Have you have you played the single player campaign by any chance? I did, and I don't know. I was maybe I was not playing on a high enough difficulty. I just played on the default one. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm particularly good at anything. But I just I found it very easy. So I, maybe I need to revisit that okay. on, on a harder difficulty level. But. Well, yeah. I just wanted to say, as far as like, if you if if you like appreciate narrative, like I I love Off World Trading Company. It's just you know, like any real time strategy game. Here's just a one off game. Am I going to win or lose? Uh, what I really like about the single player campaign is how it gives it context within the framework of the game systems and not some silly story about. Okay, you're doing a training mission. Okay, the bad guys attack you. Okay, now you research tanks and you get those in the next yeah. mission. Okay, now you go fight the bad guys and you do a base defense mission. You know, it, it's all within the context of the different tools in the game and which ones do you want to use and which ones are your opponents using and what tough choices are you going to make about what you do next um, as far as, like, where you're going to play. Uh, I just love, love, love that single-player campaign and think that it's a great way to experience the game beyond just a one-off match against opponents. Is, is, is that something, though, that you can actually turn around the outcome whilst you're still quite a way into, into the campaign? And what I mean by that is, like, let's say you're, you're, you're quite far ahead of the opposition or quite far behind of the opposition, you know, maybe halfway through. I mean, is there still the ability to, to turn it Turn it around and, and or lose from a from a large winning position or, or win from a large lo- losing position because I know I gather games like XCOM and XCOM 2 though I haven't gone into them greatly um, I know that there's generally a point in that where you know, you're either so strong that you, you're just going to go on and win every mission right. or you're or you're just not powerful enough and you're going to go on and lose all your troops so does Offworld Trading Company the campaign does it actually let you overturn that sort of situation? No, I don't think so, because what it's basically doing, it's almost like a uh, 
a career mode in a race. And if you come in first place, you get a certain number of points, and it moves you up the list if you come in last place. So you can get all the way to the end of a career mode in a race where, okay, even if I lose this race, I'm going to win. I have so many points accumulated. I'm going to win the career. Uh, Off-world trading company, the campaign, kind of works along those lines. I'd be um, interesting in finding so, a game that you could actually do that where you can – you know, when the odds are stacked against you or, or the odds are very much in your favor, you, there's still, you know, a good chance that, that that could change even halfway through the game. I don't know if you can think of any. I'm asking you the hard questions now. I don't know if you can think any of the, any of those sort of games off the top of your head. But I, mean, I think uh, what I can think of that, uh, Alex, you're, you're, you need to start playing board games because <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of one of the design challenges that contemporary board game design faces is. How do we make it where there are four people sitting around the table and the one guy starts winning and so the other three guys lose interest because they know they can't yeah. win? Like how do we allow dramatic upsets and comebacks without just turning everything over to randomness? Yeah. Uh, and there are some wonderful game designs that, that, that do that. And so what I think of as board game design, I'm sure there are some in video game design. I just can't think of them offhand. So, uh, so my challenge to you is, is to, to find, me, sir, find me a board game that maybe uh, my, my eldest, who's uh, about to be 12, but still smart, pretty, pretty savvy with these sort of things, that I could maybe play with her that she'll enjoy where there's a mechanism such as that in place. So that, that's my challenge to you, Tom. And does it have to be two players? Is that the idea? Like, would you, have, would you press the other girls or your wife in the service, or it's just something you and your 12-year-old would play? Um, I think just the two of us until maybe my other children get a bit older. All right. I will definitely think of something, and I will post it in the comments section for this podcast. And anybody listening, if you have any ideas, what's a board game that Alex and his 12-year-old daughter could play? Uh, yeah, I've got some ideas, so keep an eye on the comment section, and I'll put that in there. Okay. Now, Alex, before I let you go, I have one quick question. Yes. And I couldn't tell if you were just pulling <laughs> my leg. You said something once in uh, uh, to me about uh, adults – either shouldn't drink milk or there's no reason for them to drink milk. And if you don't believe me, I'll show you my senior thesis <laughs> or something. You were just making stuff up and pulling my leg, well, right? What, what, the, the, the thoughts behind that I do agree with, but I, didn't, I never wrote a thesis on it. I'm not a doctor. But, <laughs> but uh, I mean, That, by the way, is a great way to shut down an Internet <laughs> argument. Just claim that it was what you did your doctorate on or something. Yeah. <laughs> but but let, me, let me give you this analogy. Um, what other species drinks milk from another species? Oh, none, yeah. none. I mean, no, well, after after they're mammals, but once a once a, a mammal grows up, no other mammal drinks uh, milk. It's just something to nurture the well, young. Even even into species, it doesn't happen apart from humans. So you know, it makes you wonder why. Uh, why what do you mean it doesn't happen as often? No, as no, it only happens. I'm saying it's only humans that drink, you know, cow or goat. Right, right, right. That's what but, I'm saying. But, yeah, I know, know, right. Another animal would never eat a uh, another consume another animal's uh, uh, milk. So. Uh, Right. So it makes you want to bet. I mean, it's a huge billion dollar industry and, and, you know, there's been marketing campaigns since I was a kid uh, to, to establish, uh, you know, people to use them. Well, do you know why that is, Alex? Another, because it's only when a female animal is pregnant that she's producing milk. Right. So it's not like there are female cows. Well, it's not like there are, there are female mammals running around who just happen to have spare milk that any other animal could drink. It's part of the pregnancy and birth cycle of, of, of mammals. Yeah. We as human beings, uh, you know, we don't have to deal with that. We can 
extract milk, and we don't drink human milk. I mean, you, you could, I guess, and you do when you're a baby. But we can harvest from cows um, milk as a continual source of protein without killing the cow. Let, let me give you a, a, an example here. I, uh, uh, my, my family has a, works for a charity called uh, Heifer Project International. Uh, and what they do is they donate to some third world village uh, a, a cow that that village can then use as a milk cow to give milk um, without slaughtering the cow and eating it. And then later they give them an- another cow, and, and then as these yeah. cattle breed to pay back Heifer Project, I think the third offspring goes back to Heifer Project. Uh, but the idea is if you give someone a cow and they just slaughter and eat it, they're going to you know eat for a week. If you give someone a milk cow and they milk it and breed right. it, they can support their village for, for years and years. Uh, so it, it's part of human technology. Like sure. other animals, of course, they don't, they don't make computers. They don't drive cars, you know. We drink milk because it's a convenient source of protein uh, that doesn't require slaughtering an animal. Um, but, you know, for, and doesn't require... the third world, and oh, it's sorry. about use. Yeah, absolutely, I can see the benefit. I mean, I just think that um, to drink that... Um, in the Western world, is is maybe not the the most useful drink uh, to to take. Uh, I guess this thing. Uh, I mean, I, I I don't get me wrong. I I still I still drink milk occasionally. I've become lactose tolerant in my old age, which you probably don't need to know. But uh, um, I just uh, I find that if I if I, once I started sort of decreasing the amount of dairy generally that that I consume, I, I felt just less lethargic, felt felt healthier generally. Maybe it's a psychological thing, but yeah, try try it for one week. Try no dairy for. I see. So you're talking about personal experience yeah. and not like some side. I thought you had some scientific basis, yeah. and that's totally cool. Yeah, like if you, I for instance try not. I mean, I don't lately, but there have been times in my life where I've just eaten no sugar and I've felt wonderful. And there's of course scientific basis yeah. for that, but. Uh, so if if like you not drinking milk makes you feel better, that's that's fine. Yeah. But I would still argue it is a luxury that we enjoy and should take advantage of uh, as technologically advanced creatures uh, as a convenient way of getting milk. For instance, if you're a vegetarian, yeah. you know vegetarians have a hard time getting protein, yeah. uh, and milk is a great way for them to get protein. Uh, I don't eat, you know, I I have eggs for breakfast, but I don't always have you know, chicken or meat or whatever to get protein later in the day. So a lot of times I, I drink milk. Um, and I, I just think that's like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't go this far. Well, you know what? This is terrible. I was going to compare you to anti-vaccination people, but that's completely <laughs> unfair. And you're not nearly that bad. But I'm just saying milk is something that's a unique human advantage that we should take advantage of. Uh, but if it personally makes you feel better not to, to drink it, that's totally fine. But what... Hey, hold on a minute. If you don't drink milk, how do you get your ice cream intake? No, I, as I as I said, I do I do partake occasionally, but especially <laughs> when you're with the kids, you know, you, 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 it would be rude not to, to partake when when they're all having ice cream. But as I said, I, I could I could go without dairy quite happily and and, and physically feel a bit better than other. Uh, older. Wait, what are you going to put on? What cheese are you going to get on your pizza? I, I didn't start actually eating. Cheese and pizza till I was about 18. It was never really my thing growing up. I was quite an obtuse child, not just picking games such as fairy tale adventure, but also in my, in my eating <laughs> habits as well. All right. 
All right, well, th- I'm, I'm glad this got cleared up because I thought you were sitting on some <laughs> scientific fact that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> when, when it gets proved, from, I'll, I'll send you the 100-page uh, scientific stuff. Yes, please do. Please <laughs> send me the link to that. I will definitely read it. And in the meantime, Alex, I'm going to think of something that uh, you and your daughter can play, so I'll post that in the comment section. So, Alex, I really appreciate you hanging out with me today. This has been great. Well, thank you for having uh, me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, for the listeners, we'll be doing more of these uh, uh, community member listener uh, interviews. If you are interested in joining these on the forum, you can find a thread where you can sign up for them. I would be happy to talk to you about the game of your choice. So feel free to join up for that. Uh, and I'll be back next week. I actually happen to know the game next week. We're going to be talking next week about Don't Starve with Someone. Uh, there's a survival. There's a punishing survival game. Have you played that one, Alex? Uh, I don't know. I would have seen one of your streams, and that, that looks interesting. One day, one, yeah, and I'm retired. One day. They, exactly. Like, definitely takes a lot of time. It's cute. Uh, great production values, but uh, yeah, that that one will kick you in the butt. Yeah. So, all right. So, uh, thanks for listening, Alex. Once again, thank you so much for being thank here. You too. Uh, and we'll, we'll we'll see everyone next week. Do you, do you know what this music is, by the way? The never-ending story. Whoa, you do know! <laughs> Very good. Quality 3, where everyone plays until the morning hours.